it's Film Sack. We're back. Today we're going to interview Zubi Mohammed, an independent filmmaker and producer based in Los Angeles. That's where I am right now. Uh, Zubi actually has been making a documentary about the making of the Blair Witch Project. 20 years ago, he used to live in Orlando and he actually was shooting behind the scenes footage while the Blair Witch Project was being made. So he has like a real insight into the mythology of the film. And uh, 20 anniversary gonna be, I think, happening next Tuesday. Uh, the, what is it, Zubi? 16th. The 16th, <laughs> all right. So that's a very special episode that will really debunk a lot of myths around the film. I'm so looking forward to it, because I, I remember so vividly, I was on a plane to the Sundance Film Festival in when it was going to premiere, and all anyone was talking, and it was loaded with agents and acquisitions people, and all anyone was talking about was the the one film that everyone had to see was Blair Witch Project. Um, people may forget how defining it was. It was this film that was going to change everything, the way you made films, marketed films, <laughs> approached films, and I, it, was, it was tremendously exciting. I was, in fact, disappointed when five years later I felt it hadn't had the quite the impact I was I was expecting it to have. I thought a lot of people were going to try to try to Blair Witch um, um, films, uh, the whole process, which it sounds like, uh, Zuby, you have um, a lot to say about how it was a more collaborative um, process than people really realize, a more, you know, a more complex process, and um, that that's part of what you've been working on with this documentary idea of yours. Is that right? Yes, exactly. I mean... The thing is, is I don't think um, there's sort of been, you know, sort of the definitive story of how this particular film kind of came together. Um, but for sure, the approach of, you know, the filmmakers uh, regarding how they made the film was very communal um, and just very social in the sense that, you know, everybody really kind of like there was a core group of course but you know the from going from the the actors having you know the cameras and the audio and they're the ones who kind of filmed themselves and sort of informed um, a lot of how the characters were going to express themselves even in the scenes that they were filming themselves and that information would go back to the directors and then they would the directors would make adjustments and also the uh, the producers so it was it's definitely a different way, and I can kind of get into that. But um, yeah, what and and what the Jenny was talking about, uh, I had seen some information from uh, uh, Jacobin, um, you know, that um, just kind of learning because I I really didn't know all you know much about um, Jacobin and everything, and I was like, oh yeah, I you know um, Blair Witch was definitely a very kind of democratic way of how they made that film uh, it wasn't like so much there's this one auteur and you know this person just kind of controls hardcore the vision of exactly how everything goes and this one the vision on uh, with regard to making Blair which was much more sort of shared I think yeah, and you shared with Evgeny and I a, a really interesting account by what the production designer, um, Ben Rock, is that right? And yeah. He gets into some of the details of, of how collaborative it was, collaborative it was. You know, I think I think it became kind of generally known 
um, something about the way the actors were going to be <laughs> kind of hazed mm-hmm. and had agreed to be. Um, but I don't think people realized that there weren't just two directors or two creative forces. Um, um, what are their names? Uh, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Yes. There was at least one other and maybe even two other um, primary creative forces all working together. What, 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 did they, what did they get called? The Haxon Five after the name of the film company, Haxon? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Who were they and how were they all working together? Yeah. So you have the Haxon Five, which, you know, um, you basically have three producers and the two directors mm-hmm. and um, the two directors, Dan Ma- Dan Myrick and Ed Sanchez, um, came up with the sort of initial concept of, you know, um, a group of uh, students who go out in the woods and go missing and they were making a documentary um, but then the other elements such as in the way how the film was made such as you have these actors go out there but they actually were essentially like li- literally living in the woods um, and then like you said being sort of hazed and sort of haunted by the filmmakers in the sense that they would actually kind of be the actors would be out in the woods the filmmakers would remotely um, direct them in the sense of leaving sort of these notes, and I can get into that a little bit later for the actress to find like little Easter Easter eggs um, <laughs> out in the woods, um, and then um, you know, but the the directors wouldn't know what the actors were actually getting until they would get the the footage, and um, so the key figure who kind of came up with this approach, his name is Greg Hale, and he's one of the producers, and. I would say he basically the three of those guys were the nucleus of this of this five um, because he came up with this idea because he has a um, military background and um, he knew and had participated in uh, military exercises where you take soldiers out in the woods um, or to different areas where they are under a lot of pressure and they go through basically being beaten by the elements on purpose so that if they were to ever be captured or whatever, that they don't break and all that kind of stuff. So it was basically military uh, special forces training that he knew about. And so he kind of wanted to subject the actors um, to that, um, but also that it would make their performance as real as possible because they were physiologically going through the experience of being deprived of food, you know, water and just comfort and all that kind of stuff. So so I would say those three guys were the sort of primary forces in the sort of vision, but the other two guys were equally as important, um, and so, uh, uh, which would be uh, Robin Cowie, who is um, um, the producer who really was focused on sort of getting money, you know, whatever money that they would need and kind of a lot of that aspect, sort of a lot of the financials, um, uh, so that the other guys didn't have to overly focus on that, but he still had, you know, his voice in the mix. Um, and then, um, Mike Manello, um, he, I mean, it was, Mike was amazing because, you know, he had a background of film festivals uh, and and marketing in film festivals, and he knew about sort of f- film festival programs and a lot of the film sort of, you know, he just has really great taste. And so he just has a sense of um, sort of what works in that space, in the film festival spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and also just knowing how to market it. And he was also savvy with the internet as well. Um, he's sort of one of those guys that was just always ahead of the curve when it comes to both sort of cultural elements and um, and just the internet. And like, okay, how do we kind of connect with the audience out there? It's interesting, you know, like what I'm curious about is um, since the two guys eventually got the directors, credits and the the other three that I think they're like producers right yes they got producer credits but then also since the actors um, were improvising and shooting themselves and sort of like making creative decisions about the scenes they were also like acting in it sort of feels yeah it feels extremely communal but then I sort of wonder how I mean I bet it's fair that the only the two guys are the directors but it's something similar to the way Mike Lee, op- for instance, operates, right? While he's the guy who gets eventually only the writing and director, writing and directing credit, uh, actually he finds his movies and scripts while improvising and finding, developing stories with the actors, with a troupe of actors. And, and they don't get any like creative credit outside of acting. So in the end, I kind of wonder if this is a bit of a similar situation where so many people had an input into the creation of even scenes and all that and the people who got basically in the end directing credits are the guys who I don't know just I guess edited at least the final cut right so they they definitely had the edit all the editing decisions are theirs but yeah I guess can you elaborate on that because it's clearly anti-author but then in the end still it it puts just a few people on this kind of you know pedestal and yeah, yeah that, I think, you know, that's a really great point. And um, and to a degree, I think there's a lot of people out in the world would find sort of authorship um, uh, arguable in different, you know, in different circumstances, you know. And um, but in the case of okay, so, for example, with Mike Lee, um, I would I would still consider him for sure sort of an auteur um, sort of filmmaker, you know, um, even though he has this sort of um at a communal aspect in which he workshops, um, from my understanding, that's what he does. He workshops um, his stories, his scripts, and, and, and whatnot. And then by bringing in the actors, and then they then flesh out um, more detail about their characters, and even go down to, uh, and even um, going all the way to um, getting the dialogue, which he, I think, he will like transcribe that, and then that's what they will ultimately film. So yeah. it might be, yeah. it might be actually quite drastically different from what was originally written, ver- like. Oh, fr- from what I understand, when I was like looking into my Lee creative process, actually there's no screenplay in the beginning at all. I don't oh, know. There might be like go. I guess something of a story. So yeah. to go back to Blair Witch, I yeah. wonder what kind of screenplay, what existed outside of this sure. idea about doing something about yeah. the mythology of Blair Witch. So yeah. so mythology is a big part of um, Blair Witch Project in the sense that there's a broader mythology of what happened um, prior to the events of the students going to the woods. You know, um, the story of Ellie Kedward, the story of which, you know, for people who, you know, if, if you want to know more of the details, you have to go online, everybody. So, so we don't get too much into those things about the, 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 the mythology. But basically, you have sort of a, you know, um, a mythology that takes place, I think it's like um, the 1800s or 1700s or something. And then you have mm-hmm. mythology that takes place in the 1940s. Um, so all these events that had happened in that area before the kids get there. So a lot of that was 
designed initially the, the very very loosely by ed and dan the two directors right um coupled with this the narrative of the concept of the kids going into the woods trying to do this documentary um you know about the blair witch about the fabled blair witch but um then you have Ben Rock, who's the production designer. He actually fleshed out a lot of the details associated with the mythology of like who the names of the of the people from back then, like Ellie Kedward, he came up with, you know, sort of that name and, and a lot of elements of the character. And and so Ben is actually one of those people who a lot of people, the broader public don't realize his contribution to the broader mythology that people like to kind of click on or read about, which feeds into the experience they have when they watch Blair Witch outside of what they actually see the see that happens in Blair Witch. So there's sort of that. But as it relates to what you were saying about, say, Mike Lee and the director authorship kind of thing. You know, the directors were directing the actors, even though the actors were um, <laughs> out there in the woods filming themselves and not recording themselves. <laughs> um, um, but there was no screenplay, basically. But, but, but right? there was a scenario. Mm-hmm. So there was what they called a scenario. And the scenario basically would have a set set of general events that, was, that the um, characters were going to go through while they were in the woods. But... Being, but the specifics of what was going to happen, they did not include that in that broad scenario because they wanted the actors to be able to have a very real visceral experience. So the actors are out in the woods and um, they're in their tent and suddenly they hear weird sounds in the woods, but the actors at that point don't know what that's going to lead to. They just know, okay, you're going to be... Um, in this area, a set of events are going to happen, and then you're going to end up moving from here to the, here to there. So there's a general outline scenario, but the specifics of what was going to happen, the actors didn't know, and because that was the whole point that Greg Hale wanted to make sure that that was maintained. So, but during the times um, that the actors were going to get directions, and I, I I would say it's sort of remotely directed, and what I mean by remotely directed is that. The film was shot over a span of eight days, and occasionally the um, actors would get these little baskets. They're little; they weren't gift baskets, but they were. <laughs> they were just these little baskets that would have things like a maybe a um, uh, what do you call those bars? Like a health bar thing, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, 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 and then they would also have like additional cassette tapes, some some batteries, just so that they, they could continue filming. Um, and then they would also have these tiny little notes inside. Um, back in the day, they were when people shot photography, uh, shot film for photography. You had these little black canisters that you would put the actual 35 millimeter film into and so the directors would put these little notes uh, into these little canisters that would be labeled each with the actor's name or initial i guess and um that actor would open up that canister and inside that little plastic canister would be a directing note that would say something let's say for example heather got her note and it would say hey heather um you know Josh cannot be trusted at all. He is going to continue to make you guys lost in the woods and he's bad news. 
And then Joshua's note, and uh, Josh would get his note, which Heather would never see, and Josh would never see hers, and his note would be like contradictory. It would say something like, Josh, make sure you make Heather feel better and that, um, that she trusts you because you are the one who has to get everybody out of these woods. So, but again, the actors didn't know what they were, what they were getting. And then sometimes the actors would just throw in their own uh, creative choice. Like there's a scene in the film where um, Michael, he is the sound guy. He, it's then revealed that he kicked the map into the river and the actors <laughs> didn't know that. And the thing is, the directors did, never gave him that direction to, to make that happen. He just <laughs> made that. So when, the, so when the directors eventually get their, their baskets of um, tapes or footage that the actors had been shooting, it's almost like it was an exchange. Like the actors would come upon this basket, in the basket would be little protein bars and their notes, and then they would put inside that their footage that they had, the spent footage that they've done, and then the, they would continue on their journey, and then the directors would sneak up and grab that basket out of sight, and then they would then have to see what footage that the actors got. Were the actors following their directions at all? What were the actors contributing? And so at that point, there was a point where the directors saw footage in which Michael says, I kicked the map into the river. And the directors are like, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to use that. You know, like, like they have to. So it's like they were riffing off of each other in a way, even though there was this guiding set of concepts in the scenario document. You know, listening to you now, I'm thinking, um, did the actors actually get cinematographer grads? Grads? Because they were basically actors. It's very unique also in this way. Actors are cinematographers. You know, it's that's a, and that's a great question. And the answer is no, they did not get the cinematography credit. Um, another person, uh, his name is, uh, his name is uh, Neil Fredericks. Um, and Neil... And the reason why, uh, well, first and foremost, you know, Neil, I think, unfortunately, um, uh, he didn't really get the type of credit I really think he should have gotten, you know, because the thing is, the movie, the aesthetic is, you know, it's supposed to be student film, you know, black and white, like home video. So it's not supposed to look like super pretty, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people would look at that and it for Neil, um, who um, sadly passed away. Um, But, um, you know, Neil had to keep in line with what the reality of what the film was supposed to be. So what he had done um, for his, you know, he actually did a really great job in trying to maintain that aesthetic and things like technical things like, okay, if these actors, along with training the actors how to use the stuff, but if the actors are going to be in the tent and at night, and then they point the camera out, and you only he, the the cinematographer only wants a certain amount of vision, meaning like they have a, a light on the top of the camera, and there's only so much light you want to be able to see out in the woods. He has to he has to make sure that you, they can see that far, technically speaking, but you know. He's controlling it in that way. So he's doing cinematography and controlling it that way by setting up, not only training them, but also making sure that he's picking the right type of film stock that's going to behave that way and all those kinds of things. So 
and also testing out what can work, what can not work. Because the act, the filmmakers, when they did their initial test, cinematography test, they had to kind of see how far away, when they're doing their haunting of the actors, they're hazing them or whatever, um, they need to know how, what's the closest distance can they be to make sure they're not seen. Mm-hmm. But how close do they need to make sure certain objects that need to be in the scene need to be seen? And that fell on the hands of, uh, of uh, Neil Fredericks. You know, he had to design that, um, you know, and also, you know, he had to keep in mind about, OK, I don't want certain things to look too polished because it has to. The key thing for this was always, are people going to believe this? And nobody is being the general public is not being told that this is a fictional scenario. So the minute you kind of break this idea of that it's a fictional thing, it could actually ruin the experience because that's the whole thing, you know? Yeah, which is super... Right. Yeah. Oh, oh, go sorry, ahead. go. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick. Cause, um, uh, <laughs> since we already talked this briefly about it, from what I understand, it was super surprising that this whole approach to hiding uh, the fact that they're actors and there's a actually fictional film that was an idea of distributors who bought the film rather than of the filmmakers and which brought it to a whole other kind of level of ingeniousness in a way right can you elaborate on that because it was clearly very avant-garde to make something like this but then in a way even more kind of prank it's a great prank and very avant-garde to also trick the major public into believing this is found footage for real so yeah could you talk about it yeah you know i mean um for the actors, I think that wasn't, you know, they they wouldn't, they did not like that. Um, and I don't think there are many actors who would be down for that at all. But, you know, they, uh, you know, they, I think they kind of grit their teeth to, to do it. And I think, broadly speaking, I would say that it really helped the film. And so what you're talking about is that when the film was finished and it showed at Sundance, um, the everybody you know went on stage everybody meaning the the filmmakers and the actors went on stage afterward and of course in the film um for those people who have not seen the film um wait should i is it okay if i say things that are spoilers i don't know whether oh it's been 20 years i know that's (laughs) hello that's that's what i figured i mean i i you know i yeah because i'm just like um, you know, otherwise it's just, it just kind of gets a little silly. But um, so, so uh, at the ending of the film, you know, um, um, uh, Josh is definitely the character. Josh has disappeared, of course, and then we see you know Michael standing in the corner, and then something happens, and um, we never hear from. Um, Heather's character again because it, the camera drops. So the assumption is something really bad has <laughs> has happened and maybe they don't exist anymore. Especially because that's the headline, of the beginning of the film that says they were missing, right? But of course, when the film played at Sundance, you see the actors get up on stage and obviously they're not missing as actors, blah blah blah. And it's at Sundance. It's at and and it's not in the documentary section. So obviously, <laughs> this is a fictional film. So the film gets bought at Sundance. And the buyers of the film, a company called Artisan, they and the um, marketing um, folks there just felt that the best idea was to not go out in the world and tell people that this was um, a fictional story. And um, but at the same time, they wouldn't go out there and outwardly to just say this is real. They just would allow people to 
do their own thing. So, um, but to help them do that, um, because it just would be compelling to kind of, um, for a lot of people to just feel like, oh my gosh, this really happened. So they discourage the actors from being out and about and being in public and doing interviews. And, um, and even if the filmmakers go out there and are on Jay Leno or whatever, and are going to premieres and eating caviar and stuff, it's like, uh, the actors weren't, uh, you know, allowed basically to, to partake <laughs> because it was uh-huh. like we had to make sure that they feed the audience to keep the, you know, to keep the whole thing going, you know. And uh, there's actually one scenario. I, I had done this interview with one of the, the publicists uh, associated with the film. And he talked about how, like, on the premiere, um, one of the premieres of the film in New York, um, the premiere goes on and. Uh, it happens and there's flashing lights and everybody's in their whatever nice clothes and tuxedos and caviars going around champagne glasses and they're having a good time and suddenly the publicist turns his head and he looks across the street and by there's some scaffolding construction going on and he sees three heads and it's like they were hiding behind the scaffolding looking at the premiere of their film just kind of like not participating obviously and because they're like told hey you know <laughs> you can't be a part of this and so he crossed the street you know he probably had you know a nice little hors d'oeuvre with him and he's like oh I'm so sorry I, you know that you can't be a part of this and stuff but you know we got to kind of keep this whole thing going and they were you know they were probably sulking and they're like yeah we know I know God, I, just... bet, I bet they felt like no money no glory oh totally none. totally you know and it's it's you know it's so you know on one hand it's like it's it's definitely like it's like a funny sort of situation but let's say on the other hand man i i my heart goes out to him because you know they really work freaking hard as hell and they are the ones who make people believe other than the scenario and the other contextual things but you know the the the, the whole thing is on them you know their performance the audience is looking at them listening to them and they got to believe that these people are real you know i mean that's the reason why the characters um have the same names as the actors you know (laughs) um and and in that in itself i think it's a little tricky you know um because now the people the actors um they're being sort of is connected to the characters um and yeah so it gets a little gets a little tricky i think for that so well do you remember do you remember how long that that uh, they they tried to preserve that because i actually don't remember that but maybe it's because i was at sundance so the people i knew were all in on of course that it wasn't that's right the fictional film and I can remember a big rush of interest in Heather Donahue yes. as an actor that it looked like for a while she was really going to have a career. And I felt sort of bad for the for the two guys, Josh and Michael, mm-hmm. weren't getting the attention because she had that big final scene yes. in huge, unflattering close up. But that was so riveting where she apologizes and she's weeping and everything. And it's right before you know everything's going to come down in the worst way. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, what I remember is everyone talking about the behind the scenes daring of the way the film had been made. Yes. And the 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 way of laying the groundwork on the internet for the film and having this extended story. And it was this was fairly early days for anyone attempting to do that. And and people were really talking about like this is revolutionary. Not only the found footage horror film genre, subgenre. 
that of course led to things like the Paranormal Activities um, series and, and Cloverfield and a number of other films um, that people were wild about. But the whole idea that now you're going to have these elaborate multimedia platform ways of marketing and getting whipping up interest in film that would be modeled on the Blair Witch um, idea. So it just seems like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was just a kind of insider Hollywood thing that that's where people like I knew tended to be focused. But mm-hmm. do you know if it was a certain point that they, they just stopped trying to preserve, preserve the idea that it was a real documentary or was it just running on two tracks all the time? You know, the short answer is I don't know how long, but I will say that, you know, they probably did this for at least like a month or so, um, you know, just to allow the film to really build on the intrigue of is it real, is it not real? And by keeping those actors out of the limelight, it really helped fuel this conversation because at the heart of it um the conversation the sort of people wanting to you know dig their heels in you know in the ground and say it is not real and then another person in the dig digs their heel and says it is real and i'm going to prove it to you and um so this sort of contest was key and i would I, I would guess that it probably went on. They, they let the actress stay out of sight for maybe a month or two, something mm-hmm. like that, until it was just kind of untenable. But but the other thing, too, was that there were some things. Um, and, for example, in my in the inter- one of the interviews I did for the doc for this, my documentary was that I um, talked to the publicist guy and he felt really bad, ultimately, that. Um, for, for example, that the actors were going through this and this meaning um, not being known and and all that stuff. But he, he knew that this was helping fuel the conversation in media and magazines about it. But then here was a major point that really was upsetting, I think, uh, in particular to Heather. Um, I was not there. So but my presumption is she was upset and I would expect that there was a number of other people who wouldn't be happy about this so you have imdb you know which is the Mm -hmm. internet movie database and um on there you know an actor can put their names on there to or someone else can put their names and say hey this is the movie i worked on and so you know for somebody you know who these actors they put their name on there but then um she she was like listed as deceased on the <laughs> on the IMDb and it's like wow. you know and it's like you know now i don't know who, who did it did it okay i asked the publicist i said did you do it? he said and he immediately was like dude no i did not i had nothing to do with that because you know he he was uh you know but but and it's one of those things where it's like you know People are going to look at that. Their family members are going to see that. And of course, you know, this is the, sort of the early days of the Internet. And um, so people are going to immediately believe things and uh, whatever. And so, you know, I'm sure like family members yeah. are, and, and whatnot are calling and saying, oh, my God, what happened? And, and they're like, no, 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 it was for a movie. But I see it's listed here, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. It's like, and again, it's <laughs> And so it's like, it's one of those things. And so again, it creates this whole speculation. And I think to a degree actually continues to fuel this back and forth pull that the general public is going to have. And some people are going to be like, see, I told you. So um, the publicist, um, you know, he, um, his name is Jeremy, by the way. Um, uh, Jeremy, he 
um, went ahead and said, look, I'm going to do have, um, I think it was New York magazine. I'm, I gotta, I gotta help, you know, this whole situation. So he, um, knew some people there and he just had them do a really nice, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was New York magazine, a really nice, um, interview with her and saying, look, she's alive and well, everybody. We're, we're a real deal magazine. We're not on the internet. I don't know this internet thing, but here she is. She looks great. Look at her. And, um, you know, and I think that that kind of helped, but it's hard because it's like, you know, enough people would have to be reading that magazine and there's this momentum that just really kind of overtook the film the filmmakers everybody the studio even themselves were kind of like overwhelmed by the momentum and i think to a degree maybe the general public too just wanted to i don't know fuel this in and of itself because it's it was compelling for them you know but it is in the end turned out to be one of if not the greatest prank in the film history. Almost, I don't know, Borat is not even as much of a prank, at least on the American audience, right? So you know, I don't even know what's... The closest you might come is uh, Fargo, mm-hmm. where the where the Coen brothers got uh-huh. away with for months and months and months on end, the claim that they opened the movie with that claims it's a true story, this outlandish yeah. series of crimes that takes place <laughs> in and around Minnesota and North Dakota. Yeah. And they totally lied. It's I a total know. Lie. Yeah, but they went around and did press and claimed it was true for it went on and on yeah. before finally some reporters in, investigated and couldn't find anything remotely resembling the story of Fargo in the crime animals and they were then they were finally challenged and finally admitted it and said well we just wanted some of the reaction that you can get from claiming something is based on a true story yeah see but it's yeah. very, you know, it's essentially you just think, I mean, and the thing is this set of techniques and um, sort of, in, you know, this fictional, you know, engaging the audience with a fictional material, pr- proposing it to be real is an, it's an old school thing, you know, World of the Worlds, you know, Orson mm-hmm. Welles, he yeah, built, right. in fact, that was the thing that brought him into Hollywood because he had done this gag basically of that, oh, aliens are, you know, coming down and all this and that. And um, and Hollywood, you know, um, really, you know, rewarded him for that. He got a wonderful like multi-picture deal and all that kind of stuff, which led to Citizen Kane. So this kind of thing has been around for for a long time. In the case of Blair Witch, you know, the Internet was a major participant in uh, in this whole thing. And it was a time where, you know, people were a lot more naive about what's on the Internet. And um, and so they used the internet in a very forward thinking way um, that most people, I mean, and I think there were companies out there who had, you know, flirted with the internet to, with regard to marketing their films and other things. But the way that um, the gang used the internet as a, not only as a marketing platform, but also a mythology broadening platform, like people Mm. could watch the film and then they wanted to know more, they could go to the internet and not a book or whatever and just read up and, and click on a bunch of things that would lead them down a rabbit hole of this mythology. So the mythology kind of needed to keep getting spread and filled out. And and this is where Ben Rock is just one of those unsung people. It's just, he really was a fundamental part of the quote unquote Blair Witch experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the internet platform is what really allowed that type of experience to to exist, and it hadn't really existed before. 
But you know what's interesting? I wonder, since you know I was too young and I was <laughs> in Moscow, so I saw this film probably on my computer 10 years after it came out. And I wonder, obviously it's a completely different experience for me. No mythology, no, like, I wasn't tricked. And I <laughs> wonder how you look at the, how do you think it basically aged? Because, you know, since the public became more savvy, internet savvy, and all these pranks proliferated as well, and all that stuff. So it's clearly like a phenomenon. It will never go away as a phenomenon. But is it like a film experience and as a just, I don't know, work of, yeah, because as a film, how uh, how do you watch it now if you ever watch it? Do, do you know? Does it ever kind of like get old is it is a joke because it's partially really hor like yeah. really scary really works great especially i guess if you watch it with it but partially it's like funny too so i don't know to me i think it was almost more funny i liked it it was more funny than scary because i don't you know i wasn't obviously buying it i was, was watching like 2010 or something you know it's it's fascinating that you say it's funny because um i think well first of all let me answer about the aging yeah. thing um I think it ages um, pretty well uh, in the sense that even after you know, okay, well, it's all fiction and stuff like that, um, you know, it still kind of has like this energy in the way that the actors, you know, portray, you know, young people being out in the woods, freaking out, being extremely emotional about their situation. Um, and also kind of expressing what potentially really people in those young young people in that circumstance would behave like. So I think in that case, um, it holds um, pretty well. Um, I agree. I agree mm -hmm. 100%. In fact, one of my favorite things about the film Mm -hmm. is that it it does something that that George Romero did really, really well with Night of the Living Dead and his other, you know, major zombie films is that so much tension is generated by the fighting and arguing yeah. and despair mm-hmm. and screaming at each other of the people that yes. that that ratchets up the level of, of terror so that you keep mm-hmm. going back they they keep creating greater threats because they can't think they're flipping out and that adds to this I, I was astonished when i watched it again a number of years after i'd seen it at sundance that i was just like wow i'm finding that the most powerful thing now because there's something about being you know, sort of forced to be with people who are just losing it in a bigger and bigger way while this unnamed threat is coming. And I also think they they were very smart in the minimalism. A lot of horror can't survive because they show you too much. Mm-hmm. The great key uh, to me to lasting horror is you you limit you limit you limit yes the the amount that you ever see to let your 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 mind kind of run riot a bit and that and that that can really hold because you know special effects age terribly. <laughs> There's so many things about horror that that doesn't age well mm-hmm. or what one generation finds scary another doesn't. But if you keep it, you know, in shadow, never quite fully seen, it can keep working and working forever yeah wait Eileen, were you at that uh, midnight screening at sundance i guess i didn't realize that you saw yeah, it yeah I, i saw it at sundance i don't know if i was at the but I was <laughs> the... At, they did multiple screenings and i saw one of the screenings yeah uh-huh. so uh-huh. but the, all the buzz already when i was coming in was people inside you know they, they pride themselves on ferreting out <laughs> behind the scenes stuff so they were already talking about the, the daring ways that the film had been made which i find ironic and i and i think it's great that you mention orson wells because orson wells gets brought to hollywood because he's done such incredibly daring work well guess what's the exact thing 
that's going to get him into trouble. <laughs> They're going to start almost immediately trying to tamp him down, restrain uh, him, make him safe. Absolutely. Is, and that's exactly what seems like it happened, happened with the, the Blair Witch Project. They, so much of the process was mm-hmm. so risk-taking and brilliant <laughs> that it was just like we're going to – it's not only that we're going to break down the, like the auteur, single, single person, single vision um, kind of thing. We're going to break down kind of what? Um, mass production of film hierarchy. So we're going to give all of this leeway to actors. I love I love Ben Rock's stories of of trying to haunt them the first night, yeah. but they're not here. They're sound asleep in their tents. And <laughs> working. So they, so at first they were just going to try and creep around and maybe you know step on a few twigs, and pretty soon they're wailing on the side of tents with giant sticks because just because they had to improvise, they had to get some sort of reaction. So there's so much yeah. risk. At every level, not only of not knowing what footage they're going to have by the end of the day, not knowing if the actors are going to find the things they planted, <laughs> not knowing if they're going to improvise, not knowing a million things. And the, so the very thing that makes it so exciting is the thing that, of course, when the system tries to continue with the, what's great about Blair Witch, they're going to ruin all of that by trying to make it safe and systematized. So <laughs> then you get to the unwatchable, what's it called, the sequel or the or the whatever it was, reboot, yeah. mm-hmm. Book of Shadows. I guess it was a sequel. Yeah, the sequel. Yeah. The, yeah. Even the preview was all I saw, and I'm just like, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's got none of the excitement. Yeah, you know. It's funny because I remember that time um, when that happened and, you know, you know, the studio basically just wanted to capitalize. And, you know, it's understandable for them to want to capitalize on the enthusiasm that the general public had and, and, you know, the strike while the iron is hot and all that kind of stuff. But um, but, you know, at the same time, it's like they didn't kind of seem to tap into what it was that made that film the first original Blair Witch Project really work. And um, it was all these things, this sort of very communal, like, you know, organic kind of, Mm -hmm. basically it's like, it's almost like the filmmakers were, it's like playing jazz, you know, you know, they played against the the actors, actors kind of bounce back to them. They see what they've got. And then there's the elements, meaning like the, the weather and all that kind of stuff that was also came into play during that time, which affected, you know, how the film is going to play out. Um, Ultimately, that's how the scenario was going to play out that they, Mm -hmm. they had, written so they kind of had to you know um riff on everything what was going on behind uh, around them but you know kind of also talking about you know how does it hold up you know one of the things i i noticed and actually one one of the things that jeremy the publicist um um, brought up which i thought was really great you know the lead a a lot of there's certain horror films that yeah you have a woman who's the lead Mm um but there the the way that in Blair it works is like she's like in charge of mm-hmm. all the guys in this situation. She's the director. She's very driven about how she wants to get things done. Um, and then also there's this thing where they never um, sexualize her. There's mm-hmm. no sort of you know, sexual play. There's no even suggestion or anything like that. Um, They don't try to go, you know, so far in any of that direction. They just, she's just this person who wants to make, who has a vision and wants to get it done. But she has to deal with the decisions she makes in bringing these guys into the mix, into the woods. And, and, and also, 
ultimately feels responsible as a leader. She feels responsible for the situation that not only that they're in, but the harm that her decisions could bring these uh, two other guys. And, you know, I mean, even today, there's not, you know, a lot of films that really allow, you know, um, a woman character to just, she's just doing her thing without there being kind of like, I don't know, other things that the filmmakers try to... How did it happen? Was it a conscious like choice of the five male <laughs> filmmakers? Yeah. Like how? No, I, I, well, I don't think it was a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they went out there going, okay, we're going to have this woman and she has to be like the <laughs> strong woman yeah, feminist strong message yeah I don't, <laughs> she will survive yeah, yeah it wasn't like they didn't write some document that these are these are the tenants that we must you know it was nothing like that i just think that they i think they just allowed it to organically play out that way and just i think if i'm not mistaken i think there was even a point that they they kind of you know played with the idea that oh maybe she might one of them might she might start to like one of them or one of them might start to like her they i mean it's not i mean this is a it's a natural instinct you know because this is how we're always i think fed that this is how a story should play out or even sometimes people are influenced or yeah. sometimes it's just you know as a society we internalize these things But it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be like that, you know? And it will be just fine if you don't do it that way. And ultimately, the guys kind of followed the the vibe of how the, the film was going to go. I think they embraced the uncertainty um, that comes with not having it super hashed out. And... And that's how it sort of it just played out, and they allowed Heather to sort of contribute in her way, and and same thing with those with the actors, you know. Um, I mean, now here's a side thing: is potentially maybe you know none of them were attracted to each other or whatever, <laughs> you know. That, that could, you know what I mean? Maybe that was the thing. Who knows? But. I actually ultimately think like it was just this natural sort of way that it just evolved into and and it didn't have to go down that road. And so I think it's really exciting to kind of think, wow, that movie did did that back then and, um, you know, didn't have to. You know, go down a certain road that so and, it, and, it, and it's built right into the shooting style. I mean, everything is so not glamorous. It's really mm -hmm. like three really tired people in baggy, not very nice clothes <laughs> staggering around, you know, and, yes. and so there's none of that quote unquote sexual tension that you can always put in yes. in your shooting style. There's no objectifying her. There's going to be, you know, she's wearing that, what is it? Right. What do they call it? That sock hat that she wears <laughs> through the entire movie. There's just no sense that where anyone's looking at anyone else like, whoa, It's sweet. This could work out well for me in the deep woods. There's none of that. Exactly. And that's really, really refreshing. Because as soon as you look at one frame from the Book of Shadows, you're like, ah, oh, here we go. Right. Because I, I just remember there's some slender, typical kind of, you know, Hollywood starlet-y, you know, young woman. And you know, yeah. everything has got this gloss just in the appearance of the footage. Right. That is so great about Blair Witch. Nobody's looking good in Blair Witch, and, and that's as it should be. I mean, they're not I, on a glamorous track. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, but, and again, like, I, you know, we all got to, I, I think, I had to take our hats off to, to Heather because, mm. you know, that is 
an, uh, this thing of looking good, um, definitely, you know, um, as males, men, you know, you know, we can have that um, sort of thought and value to it about ourselves and things. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure for women um, mm. to look a certain way and, and that that is a consideration, especially if, uh, you know, a woman's going to be filmed um, mm. for posterity, you know. And so it's like, you know, that's why you got to kind of give, give it to Heather because you know, she was just like, I'm doing this real. I'm going for it. And yeah, I'm going to put the camera in my face and I'm going to have mm-hmm. snot coming out of my nose. Snot coming and, out of my nose. And I'm going to go for it, you know? And, <laughs> I, you know, and she just, that just, it's, you know, it's just super cool. And I think that that's where I don't think she got her respect. Um, that how she should, in my view, that she should have, because she's just she's just a real powerhouse in that whole performance um, to to make that all to make all make that all work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know what's interesting about the okay, there's like a strong female character here, but also um, I just wanted to tell this story that actually the um, successful sell of the film uh, after the first night um, after the premiere at Sundance was also completely oh. <laughs> actually kind of relied on two women who are some friends of the I think Dan like of the of the filmmakers right yeah so <laughs> okay you know there's there's so many levels of of how okay like um, Ben Rock talks okay so Ben Rock production designer talks about how when he was first sort of pitched the story he was pitched it as hey there's this thing that actually happened blah, blah or the thing that happened meaning the Blair Witch story and the kids these ki- these students got lost in the woods and never heard from again and Ben was like captivated but then and he was told this story by Greg Hale um, who who had been told the story by the two directors and got Greg Hale excited about it. And then Greg basically, it's almost like he workshopped the idea or he was just testing it out. And he tells the story um, to to uh, Ben Rock to see if he gets Hale hooked and Ben Rock gets hooked. And then he had to review, take the cat out the bag and was like, hey man, no, it's not a real story, but what do you think? And of course, Ben is like, oh my God, you know, people are gonna, if people, it's a, it's a great story and people might believe it and stuff like that so these layers of sort of people telling you know this sort of tall tale kind of went so far through the film because when the film finally was edited played at Sundance the film has its premiere at Sundance in in January at, at midnight it was part of the midnight screening which at the time was sort of considered like you know, no man's land. And, you know, nowadays it's actually a much more respected time slot. But back then it was just, and I think Blair, which actually is the reason why a lot of people really like that time slot now. But um, so the distributor still came out because word had got a word on the street had gotten out. Hey, you should see this movie. You might be, you want to buy it. The film got shown screened over there. And so you have these two different groups. You have the sellers, you know, the Blair Witch guys, and you have the buyers, which is the, you know, distributor guys. The film plays, and I had interviewed both the buyers and the sellers. And um, the seller, one of the one of the guys who sold the who sold the film to the to the studio, he tells me the story how he thought, "Oh my God, this film is going to sell so good. We're going to easily sell Blair Witch after this first screening." 
this is this probably would be at two in the morning, right? The film finishes, but nobody is like there's no like buzz at running around people aren't like all excited the buyers aren't like oh i give you 100 and the, it was not it was no like crazy it was just like super kind of chill and people walked basically walked out of the screening and um including the buyers and um one of the sellers he tells a story his name is uh, he's with the executive producer of the film named kevin fox he told me the story about how he sees one of the the buyers who ultimately bought the film um, from Artisan, they walked right past him and past all the filmmakers, and he was like, "Oh my crap! It looks like we're, nobody's going to buy this film. This is this is a disaster." And um, and I was like, "Oh wow!" So he tells me that story. So then I interview, and I'll finish that story in a second because I interviewed the buyers and I asked them what happened in your perspective that night on the sale. The the film ultimately was bought. Um, that night but the buyers basically said they had watched the film the lights come up and they it was a group of them uh, so the two buyers Bill Block um, and um, John Hegeman um, from Artisan had their acquisitions team there with them in the theater and half the acquisitions team said guys do not buy this movie it's a complete piece of crap nobody's going to want to watch this movie it's not worth spending any money on and then the other half of the same team said you know you guys have got to buy this movie this movie is 100% going to be awesome please buy this movie so there was this contention going on and they walk out the buyers walk out of there they see and so John Hegeman is the one who tells me the story so he see the John, the two buyers see the filmmakers looking at them you know, probably freaking out, like, oh my God, you guys are walking out. And the two buyers walked down uh, the street, and this would have been two in the morning, cold night, and um, to have a conversation. They said, look, we need to, the two of us need to have a conversation amongst ourselves. You other team, wait for us while we think about it. So they walk down the street and they are talking, asking why they should buy it or not. And they see these two women standing by an alley and the alley leads people to the parking lot to get to your car to leave. And the two women were acting a little bit fidgety or something. There was something off. And so the, the two men came up to the women and said, hey, ladies, are you all right? Do you need anything? And the two women said, guys, we, the, we're, we want to get to our car. We're just kind of freaked out because we just came out of this movie screening for this movie called The Blair Witch Project. And we're super freaked out about it. So the guys, the two buyers looked at each other and said, you know what, we're buying this movie right away. And that night they bought the movie. It was bought for like a million bucks or whatever. And uh, then I find out the real story, what actually happened. Um, Not that that actually didn't happen, that did happen, but I I find out the other side of the story, which is Kevin Fox sees the two guys leave the theater. He's freaking out and he thinks we're gonna lose out on a sale. He then tells these two friends of his, hey, listen, if two guys, these two guys happen to chat with you and they chat with you about this movie, could you just say a few nice things about the film? And the rest is history. Uh, (laughs) Basically, these two women. uh, (laughs) And and the thing was, I thought at first I thought I wasn't sure if that was actually a real turning point. And I asked the buyer guy, John Heckman, I asked him, I said, hold on a second. Um, Are you saying that the women kind of helped influence you a little bit or what? He said, no, 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 no. You have this wrong. 
no, they are the reason, hundred <laughs> percent reason why we chose to buy this film. And yeah, and the other guy, Kevin Fox, <laughs> he doesn't realize because I I asked Kevin Fox and said, hey, by the way, um. You you think that was the reason? And he was like, "Well, you know, that was part of it, but you know, they don't really look. Those women deserve to get like a kickback or what you call that." And he just didn't want to share the money. Oh my god! I, like, I don't know. Just like, I know. It wasn't a big deal. What I, I they know. Said. And so, but then of course later on down the line, you know. John Hegeman and his marketing team then tell the rest of the public, hey, guys, this is a real situation, basically. This is a real movie. Uh, I mean, this is a real uh, set of events that happens. So, you know, and then people believe that story. So there's all this interesting multi-layers of just people, you know, kind of telling people all kinds of stuff. And, and it just built up a, moment, a momentum. But it's so fascinating, and uh, since, uh, you know, clearly <laughs> there are all these stories that people still don't know, despite Ben Rock's articles, um, that it would, it would be great to see your behind-the-scenes footage with also the new kind of interviews and, you know, about all this mythology. So I completely don't understand how the executives could basically kill like and shut down your project for the 20th anniversary it seems like it would be a great kind of like appeal would have a great appeal for the public so what's happening yeah so um this is footage that you know i had shot 20 years ago um and it's just a bunch of interviews that i did of the guys as they were making the film and a bunch of b-roll footage that um that not only i shot but they had also because i couldn't be with them at every moment in time so i just told them hey you know just just make sure you cover um any events that you're doing because i had originally um it was dan myrick who had pitched me this idea at the time it was called the blair witch tapes and he was like oh we have this idea blah 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 and I thought, man, this would be a cool thing to kind of cover. And um, and it wasn't like I was thinking like I was going to work directly on the film. I actually just wanted to make my own film at the time of, you know, behind the scenes. I thought I was always thinking of the movie The Hearts of Darkness, which is a behind mm -hmm. the scenes of making of the Francis Ford Coppola's movie. Mm -hmm. um, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, Apocalypse Now. And I was always a huge fan of that film and other kinds of making of documentaries and so i just thought oh man i want to follow you know my friends making this you know rinky dink movie i mean because that's what it was it was this tiny itty bitty film that was mostly shot on videotape and, and a little bits and pieces of 16 millimeter so i told the guys i said hey man i just want to do my own film just kind of following you guys and do do it that way and i and i said um it would i thought it was i told him i was like it would be a reciprocal effect like oh because at the time no i mean we we always expected oh this film is just going to be a little bit maybe straight to video whatever and um so i thought well you know my documentary could help market your thing in a way because it'd be its own film and then your film can help you know um market my making of kind of a thing um <laughs> well um I would, that that didn't happen but um but uh so Ultimately, this footage that I had shot sat, um, you know, away on some shelf somewhere because I ended up moving from Orlando. It's a whole chain of events. But I would always kind of like look back at the footage and, and all that kind of stuff. So eventually, a buddy of mine, another filmmaker, um, he wanted to do some projects 
And I just happened to show him some footage that I had, 20-year-old footage of the making of Blair Witch Project. He was like, wait, what? Because this stuff really hadn't, I mean, it hasn't been out there, you know? I just, it's just been, it's, and I shot it all on high 8 video, which is the same format that most of Blair Witch was done on. And, um, and he said, hey, man, let's just do some new stuff with it. So I, I thought, let's just shoot brand new interviews with people, you know? Uh, part of it is almost like a where are they now, but also it's a exploration of that time historically. The internet was new. People were much more willing to believe in certain things on the internet. Um, and also kind of like how this uh, this circumstance affected the actors because Heather ultimately got out of the acting business and she made a bonfire and burned all her acting related stuff in the woods and decided to go sell weed. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. She just was like over it. You know I mean? She was like really over it. She literally like put her stuff in a bonfire and just like, <laughs> it kind of makes me respect her more. You know, she's yeah. a real Absolutely. Blair Witch Project oh, yeah, heron, not no, just some like starlet who wants you know, to have like that's a big I'm, role in Marvel. Totally. Totally. She just wasn't having it. You know, she just, she was just over it, you know? Um, and, um, you know, and then the other um, guys, you know, there were definitely some struggles that they had as well and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I want to go back and talk with everybody and let's look at the, the, we see the hindsight and see how things have been affected. Because obviously, you know, you have paranormal activity and other movies, but also this concept of, you know, some people talk about like fake news and all this and that. So it's like, this whole idea of media and how it's been shaped um, over time um, is really interesting. So I wanted to include those historical elements so it wouldn't just be a basic, you know, just behind the scenes stuff. Um, and um, so both Kevin and I went off and started doing all these interviews. We interviewed some film, some film historians. We went to Burkittsville where the film had some scenes that were shot there to talk to the townspeople because... Um, the film became the film helped that town become very popular or not popular but well known so we built up a good amount of interviews but we still had a bunch more to do including I interviewed Ed Sanchez one of the directors Um, I still wanted to do more interviews and all the other film um, um, filmmakers and actors but I didn't get all of them but we wanted to just build up enough then we could showcase hey look this is all the stuff that we got but the story ultimately ended up that the studio didn't really feel the studio who owns Blair Witch Project today, which is not Artisan, um, it's Lionsgate, you know, for the most part, um, doesn't really feel there's enough of an audience that would really justify an interest in this documentary. And, um, you know, and, and for them, I, it's like, they're looking at things on a much broader level, um, cause you know, I met up with them and they were actually, you know, really nice. Um, you know, we actually had a really nice conversation, but you know, for me to really use that Blair Witch, um, behind the scenes footage is not something that ultimately I could do, but, mm-hmm. um, but all that said, you know, I could, you know, people have written articles and, and, and I might even do like a podcast of the, you know, making of. I haven't decided exactly what, you know, route would be. But ultimately, I just think like a documentary, making of documentary, sh- sh- looking at it from a broader picture and um, really kind of saying, look at 
it's almost like I, I'm thinking of it almost like as a heist movie, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, five guys get together and they pull the greatest heist, you know, but in this case, it's like, you know, they, you know, pull the wool over everybody's eyes kind of a thing. And, and, and it worked, you know, and they, and they got away with all the loot, you know, they got all, you know, cause it made the movie made like 200 and it was made, it was, let me just think, I think it's been listed as made for like $60,000 and it made 245 million or something, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, made a lot of money and, um, but mostly for executive areas, for, 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 not for the filmmakers really, or did they see that? Well, Okay, the answer would be yes, uh, mostly for executives. Um, fine, or, or I wouldn't say executives. I would at least say um, it probably was made by the by that original, not not Lionsgate, um, but the Our original artisan. Artisan. Um, you know, and there's there's a there's an article about you know some of the the issues kind of dealing with some of that stuff, but um, but you know it launched um, for the filmmakers. It launched you know. Um, uh, sort of a career for them and stuff in the, you know, in the industry. Um, but I, I've always been fascinated by how, you know, like you have a John Carpenter or you have a, um, I don't know, William Friedkin, um, you know, there's certain filmmakers who, you know, are looked upon as the vision kind of guys uh, mm-hmm. to make that the film. And it didn't work out in the same way for these guys because yet there first, there's two, uh, two directors, but also um, you have one of the producers who's really an integral part. A new, he's part of the nucleus, the creative nucleus mm-hmm. of that, of the five. And so, you know, he has, you know, strong input in how that worked very successfully. Um, so I don't think that anybody kind of came out of that situation where you're like, oh, John Carpenter film or a so-and-so kind of, you know what I mean? It didn't mm-hmm. really work out because it's just the nature of that, of Blair Witch. It's like Blair Witch in and of itself, it's its own creature. You know what I mean? It's, um, you know, it's like I, said, I always say, it's a very, it, the, I don't think that film could have been made the way it was made. And actually, the success that it came, if it wasn't for the five people, those particular five people at that particular time, not just in their lives, but in history, you know, everything really aligned, like, perfectly, you know? It really sounds like a fluke, because also, I mean, I don't want to sound mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's still even 20 years later, which is what happened next next Mm -hmm. week, it's the biggest thing that they've done like in terms of not even biggest I'm talking about box office I don't sure. care but in terms of just the interest level and the kind of sensibility and like well, film yeah. wise what else the thing know, is that followed the, yeah mm-hmm. you're you know here's the thing about but the thing is it's like Blair Witch is so not a is such an unnatural event <laughs> you know what I mean it's like so exceedingly not a proper benchmark because it's it has nothing to do with what normally happens because it and and in a way it takes away from the the immense creativity that the guys brought to making it work mm-hmm. because just the fact that it worked is it in and of itself kind of phenomenal because and the decisions that they made for example the original concept of the film beyond just like kids going in the woods and filming themselves was it had two phases it was going to basically be an analog 
an analyzing documentary about kids who were missing in the woods. And so most of the document, most of the Blair Witch Project was going to be, we would see talking heads analyzing this woods footage of these kids and it would freeze frames on certain shots and then digitally zoom in and all that kind of stuff on, you know, was that a witch in the background or what, are, you know what I mean? It's all this kind of stuff. But at some point in the filmmaking process, they decided to jettison that what was called phase two material. Phase two would be the analyzing material and just keep the woods material and make that material be what we all know it to be now, which was the Blair Witch Project. And I think there was a little bit of pushback within them as a group because nobody had ever done something like that before, where it's just a bunch of basically seemingly random video footage of leaves Mm -hmm. and trees and twigs and whatever. And then you'd edit it together into a story. And it's like, would people sit there and watch an hour and a half of this material? It's like, it was just for them and for everybody else. And in fact, in my documentary, like I had shot back then, this would have been like 1998. I remember an evening where the guys were sitting there debating this amongst themselves. They were like, we want to submit this to Sundance. And we, if we decide to go down this route, I mean, are we kidding ourselves? Like, it's just a bunch of high eight footage and of trees and leaves and people yelling at each other, this might be silly. There's just no, there was no reference point. But then they made the decision ultimately, and I have to say it was contentious between them because they went as far as even deciding one director was going to do one version and the other director was going to do the other version. Damn. Mm-hmm. And and at that point, you know, before that point, the two guys, Ed Sanchez, Dan Myrick, were working together. One would come in at night and edit, the other come in in the day and edit. But then this decision was made to split them up. And so one would just be editing one version and then they would make ultimately a decision. We're gonna choose this one or we're gonna choose that one. Um, And you know, that's an emotional, for guys who've been working together for a long time, it becomes very tense um, because you're now Basically saying, are we going to choose you or are we going to choose you? You know, your sensibility or your sensibility. Um, now, I will say that they ended up finding a mixing ground kind of a thing between the two. Um, so so that worked out in that way. But, I, you know, they did have moments where they were like, you know, um, you know, they almost broke up or whatever. You know what I mean? It was like it was one of these rough things because everybody has so much personally invested. And because it's a communal thing, it's harder to be like, you know, well, I'm the director, so screw you. You know, it's mm-hmm. just it's a totally different dynamic. And th- don't get me wrong. It's not like these guys come from a background where they were trying to always be communal in that way. They all each were like, oh, I'm a filmmaker. You know, I want to have my vision, whatever. But it just this particular project led them to make it in this way so they themselves kind of had to learn what it is to do a film communally like this so which is in some ways sounds harder because there's no hierarchy and there's no general or at least one no one general yeah yeah, that's well and but you know hollywood will be it's tricky because i in just my own limited experience in indie film the most frustrating thing i found is even at the lowest indie level 
people are already so invested in the idea of doing it like the industry does that even people who are way on the fringes, maybe not anywhere near the system, are desperately trying to get everyone to follow the rules yeah. and take up the approved industry hierarchy slot. I mean, what if there was ever any room for um, someone saying, you know what, we love this hacks and five thing and we don't know what found footage horror is going to look like. So how about we give you a housekeeping deal and you <laughs> develop us three more projects mm. and huh. we'll just, we'll just take a, 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 a gamble on yeah. you being able to, str- to have lightning strike at least one more time out of three. That would be worth it. Yeah. Huh. But they can't think that way because the idea that you'd have five, frankly, they get freaked out if there are two. And I know cause I, I worked with a directing team. Mm-hmm. And the crew are all like, who's, who's the real director? <laughs> who, who, who can I count on to tell me? I don't know. This wigs me out. You're like, come on. It's two people instead of one. They've agreed upon what they want. That's What's right. wrong with you? But the terror of doing anything that hasn't always – this is why you have scripts that are still typed out in that same font <laughs> that have two brads and all that shit. You know, for the <laughs> longest time, they held on to these crazy traditions in Hollywood. It's a guild way of keeping out outsiders mm-hmm. in my view anyway and, the, and just an absolute terror of any kind of innovation. It's just like – and you, you wonder why. It's such a high-risk industry. You're gambling anyway. Why not gamble a little more? <laughs> and maybe get something interesting out of it. But, you know, that that clearly was not going to happen, which I've always thought is the irony of Blair Witch Project. So hugely successful, just off the charts. Such an exciting new move for a horror film to make. And as fast as they could close it down, they closed it down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the... I don't know. I think ultimately, I think a lot of times people feel more comfortable sticking with the same thing um, being something that's very familiar and something that can be kind of controlled because you know these things Um, and then there's this other aspect and where you have people who work sort of maybe in the executive um, ranks who kind of you know what? Maybe they they wanted to be filmmakers or something, and um, <laughs> right. you know what I mean. <laughs> and it's <laughs> and sometimes there's that that kind of comes at play, you know. So there's all these dynamics, but but you're right. It's like you know, there's so many different ways that you can approach making a film, and 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 it should be something that you risk trying something fresh. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But that's also why I think it's great that nowadays that you know. Theoretically, somebody can, you know, you not even theoretically, like you can make a f- film on your phone and, you know, mm-hmm. people can edit on their laptops and all these amazing things going on. Um, and so you can just go out there and, and, and do it in the non-traditional way and ideally and also broadcast it or just get it out, release it out into the world to get immediate feedback. And I kind of think that's more important to take advantage of what, you know, historically where we are now that we can we can do that, you know, um, if you if you want to, or you can just kind of stick with the traditions of, you know, filmmaking. Eileen, you know, I wonder what you said. Did you mean that kind of you think that the distrust of Hollywood of more than one leader, which is <laughs> one director, mm-hmm. led to kind of the fact that n- nothing necessarily, I guess, more interesting I- came out of the, the, the Hacks and Five, and in fact, they were kind of like broke apart in some ways I just creatively. think in this case it would have been worth 
taking a gamble on the same at least for a sequel i but it was very clear that they weren't going to i mean obviously there's a reason the whole mass production system developed it was because that was the most efficient and in control way they could figure Mm -hmm. how to make a lot of films fast and make a lot of money and all that and mostly it makes sense mostly it works and you understand why it works that way but it's just frustrating to me the idea that even at the fringes you won't gamble yeah. Even when it's not a lot of money. Yeah. And you might make some phenomenal amount of money on almost no investment if you just loosen up a little. But And again, it's not just the executives and big producers and studio heads and all that. It's not even them. It's the investment you find among the first-timer, second-timer. They're, they're so desperate to prove that they know how it's supposed to work, like they're as if they're insiders, that you'll get the most – wrote, I don't know, editing done from someone who, who is just trying to make it themselves. And it's always, it's, I don't know, it was one of the shocking experiences I felt about indie filmmaking was how convention bound, how, uh, what resistance to trying anything exciting and new people were just at the, at the most small time crew level. And how proud they were if they could say, well, you know, that's not how it's done in the industry. <laughs> Be the first one <laughs> to tell you you were doing it wrong. And, you know, when you're at that level, it's $60,000 film, whatever. Hell, roll the dice. Do something exciting. Do something different. But it's even on the fringes. It's very hard to get anyone to, to say, hell, we could have another Blair Witch Project if we if we took that kind of set of chances. I mean, reading the behind-the-scenes stuff, the Ben Rock stuff, is so fascinating because it's so many wild wild rolls of the dice on the part of people who are just being asked to, to do it, just go out and find. You know, they, Ben Rock coming up with a stick figure that becomes the image yes. for the film. <laughs> and yes. that he first thinks everybody hates and everything else, and it's just, you know, twine tying a little stick man together. Um and it's all happening at that knife's edge of desperation where a lot of cool shit happens. But, um, yeah. But, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, but it just makes me think clearly then Zuby's documentary that's been, for now at least, shut down by the studio would have mm-hmm. been great exactly for this reason you're talking about, that it should, like, tell that story and inspire people to do not not the same thing, obviously, but to take risk and do something, especially if it, <laughs> it just takes your money or it takes your time not even it usually doesn't even cost that much these days so and again i don't fully understand like why they're stopping you from doing this explaining that it's like lack of audience interest which is like a bullshit reason to me what's the real reason behind it well you know i mean look i I would say this is like you know i don't fully um you know like i wouldn't necessarily see like that they are, or maybe I don't want to see that that, that it's anything kind of like um, animosity, negative, or whatever that they're doing per se. I just think that, on in the grand scope of different kinds of content that they own, up, you know, control all that kind of stuff. Um, this is so low on their radar, and and um, they so they don't really see it as a value thing. You know, they just kind of see it as well, it's just this thing and we don't want to have to bother with it because we don't really think many people even really care about, you know, things that happen behind the scenes of, um, you know, um, in the making of, it's just a, you know, behind the scenes of a making of a movie, right? And yes, it's an important movie, but 
you know, it's just not a lot of people are enough people that we see is justifiable for us to um, really put our focus on. So we we just don't want to even sort of have to be bothered. But would it even cost them anything? I just don't fully understand. Like, it, it's well, not- I, I think part of it is just because, too, it's, you know, it's their it would be using you know their like like for example it would be using the the behind the scenes their the, the footage and you know which is their like other people you can write stories articles whatever about you know things that are already in the you know out there in the public you just can't go around and just be like using their material kind of a thing and so for them i think it's just kind of like um, you know, they wouldn't. I mean, I don't think that. I think it would be great. <laughs> you know, I want to. I want to. I want to make. You know, make this documentary. I think there's a lot of people who want to see it. Definitely. Um, yeah. I think that it wouldn't just be about the. You know, just the Blair Witch Project. It would just would mm-hmm. be about history and you know how not just meet not just things that have happened with the different films but just talking about the internet talking about how there are certain universal things that connect people to be scared about witches you know you go to country other countries in europe they talk about witches countries in you know asia there's their versions of of witches and that whole world so there the audience if you especially if you approach it that way and you're not so which is one of the ways i wanted to approach it i wanted to approach it much more broadly um i think there's plenty of audience but they're just i think um thinking it's just too limited and it's just not worth um sort of engaging with it because they would basically have to be engaging especially if i'm going to use this behind Mm -hmm. the scenes material that i shot 20 years ago yeah but the copyright works the way i guess the guy signed off is that the the footage you shot is you completely have no rights right yeah i mean they would be exactly i mean because you know the company which is you know well what it is is just you know you have like um artisan you know when when they bought it you know um you know, they just basically bought the movie and there's all these other sort of legal things associated and stuff. I mean, I didn't get into their um, contracts and stuff like that. But um, but, you know, I mean, at the same time, it's like I'm not I'm not trying to I have no interest in like getting into a, you know, a spat with the with the company. Like they have projects, too, that it's like, hey, I would love to, you know, do stuff even with the with the company and some, some other you know project in the future or whatever. But um but all, all obviously, this particular for me, the making of the Blair Witch Project because I was not the one making the actual film, but I also wasn't just a general audience member. I was like in this weird little sweet spot, right? Um, like a little weird Goldilocks zone where I could kind of look at what was happening with these guys objectively. Um, what was happening in the making of the film and how the people were also affected by the success of the film. Mm-hmm. But also I wasn't so far removed as a general audience member where I'm, I have such a bunch of assumptions about like, oh, these guys didn't do anything in the making of the film. They, they just punch, put a bunch of actors in the woods and they just filmed it. They didn't really plan it out. They weren't really thoughtful about how 
to make this film and it's like no I, I was there I saw it was a very set of deliberate decisions that were made um, I was there in the editing where they chose one way versus the other way so it's a very deliberately made film it just looks super loosey goosey it's just <laughs> it's, it's just not that so I'm super excited to tell that story um, both in that sort of micro cosm way but also in the broader picture of the general public you know but um whether that happens or not you know it remains to be seen but um can 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 you be helped somehow now by the let's say public that well yeah i mean i would say that i mean you know the answer is yes in that i think it's like if enough people were to say hey you know we want you guys Zuby's documentary, basically, because again, I was in sort of this Goldilocks zone. Like, if if they're like, "Hey, we really want to see this documentary," we think you you know you guys got to know that we are hungry and ready to see it. That would be it. I mean, for example, Jordan Peele, from the things I've read and interviews, you know, he's a big fan of the film, um, in particular, you know, and then. Um, Stephen King has written like an essay about the mm-hmm. film. Like that's somebody who definitely, you know, um, I sh- would assume like he would have some kind of an interest yeah. in in uh, this making of documentary and kind of seeing how these guys were able to spook him. You know, um, mm-hmm. of all people, Stephen King and stuff. Um, you know, so it's like it. You know, I think there is uh, there's enough people, but you know, it just I think it, there has to be a vocalness. Of you know, they, people have to be vocal about it. Um, you know that they want to see this thing. You know that I make this this um, this documentary. Basically, it seems from that you have to have connections in high places to put to to put pressure on the. Maybe yeah, on yeah. The you know I. Uh, you know, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, you imagine you couldn't put it together and take it to film festivals on that kind of fair use. No, no, we're not selling no, yet. No, no. So you can get away with it. Well, and then you know, see if you could, you know, egg them on to to give you a deal. Well, here's the thing: it's like you know, both Kevin and I, when we were working mm. on this together, you know, we, I mean, we spent the stuff that I mean, we traveled around the country, yeah. you know, and you know, we paid for a lot of the the gear stuff, and but we also got some help from people for some gear, so we. We're able to kind of cobble together what we what we put together to put together our trailer and you know we shot a bunch of these interviews mm-hmm. and um so you know with the interviews that's our material so mm-hmm. at the very that's kind of why i'm exploring the idea of maybe a podcast because i have these i obviously mm-hmm. it's it's been um filmed but also i have the audio the audio files obviously so mm-hmm. potentially um that could be built as basically doing a podcast version of the of what I would want to do, but obviously visually is the, <laughs> you know, right. would, be, would be super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, you spent some money, you know, we spent, you know, he and I, we spent some money. We, we bought a number of plane tickets and we traveled around and, mm-hmm. you know, and so you need money to do that kind of stuff, you know, and it's not like it's a ton of money, you know, it's not like we need a, a bunch of money, but, um, but all that said, like you're talking about, um, we could just put together, put it together, even if we were, you know, because we'd be using the behind the scenes stuff, you know, we'd mm-hmm. still have to engage with the company. I mean, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to just do it without like engaging with them, especially if mm-hmm. they're, you know, 
they're obviously, you know, the corporate. Well, yeah, they can sue you very easily. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, you can get kind of get into that whole thing. And but. um, Oh, it's dicey. It just reminds me of something like the Karen Carpenter story, that great movie (laughs) that can never see the light of day. You have to have seen it at festivals because the Carpenters own the rights to all the songs. Mm. You know, it's who is who directed these famous directors. Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes. Okay. Oh, in the wow. old Barbie doll, Barbie and Ken doll. It's a brilliant film version of the Karen Carpenter story. And it became this legend for people that had seen it, but because they used all the Carpenter songs. And that's and when Richard Carpenter, I think, controls the estate, there was no way he was going to allow this version. You know, in, in this version, I think she's anorexic, the family's abusive. You know, he was never going to allow it. But people still talk about the Karen Carpenter story. <laughs> is, so wait, was he? Did Todd Haynes? He he just went ahead and made it without talking yeah, to them. It was like his first film. Oh wow! On the map, way way back, oh, he yeah. went ahead and made it, and literally, it's Ken and Barbie. Wow! <laughs> and acting the story, and he uses all the Carpenter songs. So of course, you know, but yeah. he did get it shown. He got it shown enough places that people know about it, and there's bootleg versions you can get a hold of. Yeah. So it became a famous film just through word of mouth, but he can never, he can never really show it anywhere professionally. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, look, um, basically the film in and of itself, the whatever he, however he paid for it, mm. um, apparently, I guess was okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, like well, working with ba- you know Barbie dolls <laughs> that you're hand manipulating in front of a camera. Yeah, so it's like <laughs> be a little easier and cheaper. Yeah, see, it's like there's there's particular circumstances in which like it's a practical thing to be able to do that, and it's like okay, he lost, you know, he has those losses, and I mean this this is the practical aspect of film making which is like look you you know if you need to go to this part of town though you got to put some gas in your car to actually make that happen you know what i mean or you need to go to fly over here well i'm just i'm just thinking of all your footage already assembled it's kind of a crying shame that you have all this material yeah yeah well even let's see it's like even if like um like there's additional interviews because it was basically going to my documentary was basically going to be built upon a lot of new interviews, which I'd already started to do some. And it was just sort of more the material that I had done was sort of like initial interviews. But I still had a bunch more that I wanted to do. Um, and um, I wish I could still technically, I guess I could still kind of do if I was doing it as a podcast thing, it'd be mm-hmm. a lot easier. But um, but, you know, I had a very big epic scope idea of how I wanted the documentary to play out because it was cutting through time you know it's from the from the 80s um and even going further back like um there's the there's a movie called Hannibal uh, Cannibal Holocaust um and Man Bites Dog which you know were early kind of found footagey type of movies that mm. influenced the guys to create Blair Witch Project. It's interesting. I watched Men Bites Dog. Oh, yeah. It, that was so obviously over-the-top comical. Sure, sure. Did you, yeah, it's, it's, it's but like as a Blair, technique. It's a technique for sure, yeah. That's right. And that's the thing. They looked at the technique. And um, the Guffman movie, Waiting for Guffman. Oh, Christopher oh, yeah. Guest. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that was another one that they looked at those films and they referenced those films because of it's a mockumentary yeah. sort of format, uh, but instead doing it as a horror film, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is super interesting because what, what you're saying, sometimes general public or some haters, is, this, mm-hmm. is they're known, like, basically don't want to give guys the credit to being also formalist and approaching it from a very, you know, 
I don't know, yeah, formalist perspective and playing with the form rather than just being kind of nonchalant about throwing the actors into the forest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so, but you know, but it's a process to, to do these things. So, um, you know, yes, even the stuff I have now, I would have to, you know, mm-hmm. there's resources I need to, you know, I have my own edit, um, laptop system, whatever I can be cutting, but, um, but you know, it's like, it's always better if you can just be like, okay, I'm working on this and I'm, it's a documentary, you know, so I'm going to lock mm-hmm. myself up and just going to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but life happens. So you, you know, you have to make sure that you can function financially, you know, as you do that in order. And also the other thing too, was I really wanted to, my goals during the time, both Kevin and I, we really wanted to try to release the film as close to, that 20 year anniversary time, which is now obviously. But, um, but even if it was like afterward, because I'm still sort of in the 20 year realm, I guess you could say, um, I still think it would be pretty good. But, and I, I also told him, uh, Kevin, I was like, oh man, and I also like the whole, it's 20, you know? But if you're kind of like, oh, it's 23 year, and it's like, eh, it doesn't have the same 24 year. It just doesn't have the same ring to ring. it. <laughs> yeah. It's true. So, so yeah, so well, you're going to. Well, always podcasting. Podcast. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. I don't know, you know, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see, um, you know, and chat and see if there's, you know, any set of events that nudge things a certain way or not, but I don't know. <laughs> I have a really kind of silly question about, I guess, the uh, going around copyright and copyright situation. So if you use that behind the scene footage that actually um, is owned by the studio, mm. but like shot the screen of a laptop <laughs> and you sitting your hand is in the in the shot but like not you can very well see the footage yeah. i don't know i'm like i'm i'm just going off the cuff something of that kind like is there any way i'm just kind of i don't know being a swindler can you go around the copyright through being like inventive this way i don't think so no okay. yeah i don't All think right. so i mean i mean and and here's the thing it's like you know I, you know, I, I actually wouldn't want to kind of get into it's like it's either they would be down or they're not. You know I get it. I mean? You're not trying to cheat the system well, it's not with a, them. I, and yeah, but but also it's just kind of like I, I wouldn't want to work that way. It's like I just want to <laughs> it's either it's either they're down. We're doing it. Let's go ahead or whatever. And it's not even that they I'm not even saying that they should even that they would even have to finance it even. Um, it's just more of a case of just saying, hey, guys, um, you know, since this is 20 years, it's so funny to me because it's like footage that I shot. But uh, but, you know, but that's what happens when you when it, oh, these things kind of happen. But um, but um, I would just kind of be like hey guys let's you know let's work together in, on on this thing and and if they're like yeah let's do it then we do it but if not then i would rather have the freedom of just not having to think about that you know because there's so much when you filmmaking it's so much better when you are in complete full control of what you're doing and um you know you don't have to overly think about other forces and stuff like that so mm-hmm. but um but yeah, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, there's also a part of me that's, you know, has a, a, a sadness in the sense that, you know, 
it's a 20 year bummer kind of situation <laughs> you know what i mean it's like it's like you know 20 years and uh and you know you're like golly man i man you know i worked on that and i was it's a 20 year journey and and things aren't um where i think they should be but but yeah but you know um it's you know that's the roughness of when you kind of work on something that becomes such a major thing like i don't think like you know there's certain other movies like a man man bites dog for example that you know that's a cool movie but it didn't have this type of um cultural impact and meaningfulness in the sense that and don't get me wrong there's a Plenty it's also in who, French, which also kind of makes it a bit more limited. I yeah, feel. then you have that, you know. So it's like, I think you know the company who owns that or whatever. I doubt that, that they would be as, you know, protective of the yeah exactly. The footage, and yeah. so that's why it's it's uh, it's understandable to a degree when you have, you know, um, you know, a major company um, because it's so weird. Like my perspective about the how I look at that movie is because I come from it being right there watching it as it's put together you know I saw how the you know how the sauce was made and stuff and so I'm like oh okay I see but I'm not looking at it from a a real objective outsider experience right like because everybody else looks at it as a bigger I mean and, and it obviously it is big but I'm just saying it's I'm just much closer to it in no, that way so I'm not gonna mm-hmm. see it like how objectively and also there are hard financial realities that happen with that film meaning that you know 200 million dollars was a lot of money and so people you know we're gonna you know and every halloween i'm sure somewhere in the world that movie's playing mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that's true and oh and for those who um don't who listen who do not know what Man Bites Dog is. I'll just quickly explain. It's a Belgian, I believe, film from early 90s uh, made by a very small crew who are both like cinematographers, actors. It's all like just friends together. Uh, it's a, in the form of mockumentary and it follows as if a documentary crew follows a serial killer while he's doing the serial killing and also explaining and kind of talking about his life. And it's also like a weird mix of clearly fictitious killings and the real documentary because the guy who plays the serial killer I believe his real parents or grandparents are in the film because they didn't even know what kind of documentary they're making so they're acting all natural so it's a really I think it was pretty big maybe in Cannes or somewhere at some kind of European film festival yeah Yeah, but it wasn't even half as scary as Blair Witch because it's obviously I don't know it's you can tell he's not killing yeah. <laughs> the people on the street is just kind of shot in a way that it was somewhat obviously like a exaggerated comedy but yeah so that that's the film but but yeah and back to Blair Witch before before I forget so you know I feel like it kind of has to be talked about and you we briefly before this interview you told me a few stories is that people think that yeah these guys are truly like just artists with no connections were from florida and uh this film their first big feature got into sundance that's sort of accidentally just on pure merit and luck and all that but from what you know it's actually 
not exactly true, right? And I think it, it says something about the state of Sundance and independent f- f- cinema that it's actually, you have to have some kind of like uh, lag in the door, even as independent filmmaker, to get it to get in, in there in a way, even 20 years ago and now. So what, well, what's your story? I mean, really, it's more of a case of this, is yeah. that... Um, the so when the film the film was shot um, in nineteen ninety seven the whole wood stuff and um, then the film um, after it was shot and then uh, in June I think of ninety seven somewhere there they had a screening a kind of a screening that was just kind of two and a half hours of the woods material where they were just essentially testing out it was like a test screening just to kind of see what people's responses were to that material in new york that's the new york screening you were talking no No. this was in florida yeah this was shortly after they came back from filming out in the woods and they were just like well they were just basically getting an audience to to evaluate hey this is what we got what are your thoughts and in that screening it was a very small screening in orlando florida um there was a producer who happened to just be in town and he um, knew sort of one of the filmmaking member, uh, one of the, one of the filmmakers in our Orlando community. And um, he w- was not expecting much. And so when he watched the footage, the two and a half footage, two and a half hour of Blair Witch Woods footage, this is before they shot any of this additional stuff, which they ended up not using. So he came out of the screening and he told the guys, and this was Kevin Fox, he said, hey, look, you know, I really like what you guys have done here. Um, You know, I've had some films in Sundance and, um, you know, I really think this movie's gonna be at Sundance. Um, If you guys, because the guys said, oh, we wanna put it in the Sundance. So he was like, you know, hey, let's chat, you know, and, but really what I think was going on was the sense that the guys basically, they meet meet him and he was based in New York and he set up a screening, um, oh, well, I forget the name of the place, but he set up a screening in New York City where he invited a number of people who know, um, who are sort of like in the indie film world and who could sort of kind of spread the word around both the indie film world and in the in festival world, essentially, because they knew they were going to submit to Sundance. And I think by doing that, that really helps the programmers be aware this thing is coming down the pike, right? Sure. So, um, and so the film showed at that New York screening. And in fact, uh, uh, Jeremy Walker, the, the publicist guy who had never met the filmmakers, he met them for the first time there. And so it was just to get this buzz happening into the film industry and into the festival world. And um, now they still, you know, obviously they submitted the film and there was no guarantee 100% that the of film course. was going to. But when the film. Um, got I'm sure what must have happened is the film got to sun, somebody's hand the people's the program's hands at Sundance and there was probably some kind of awareness especially because there were clips on the internet about this um, film because at that point the filmmakers were already kind of talking about the film so there was an internet presence and so I really think that helped in 
now whether or not that would help today, I don't know. But I think that the cold conversation because I know for a fact that Kevin was saying how like um, he kind of helped provoke you could say like bootleg versions of the um, of the movie mm-hmm. on VHS around the filmmaking community, especially the New York yeah. filmmaking community. Um, and so like he told the story how, um, again, this is one of, my, um, one of my interviews, he told the story about like, he used to work in the post-production world in New York and he knew kind of what some of those people at that time, I don't know what it's like today, but at that time they would make, if they were doing duplications or whatever, they would make VHS copies of a movie um, that they liked to, to take home for themselves for their just for themselves or for some family or friends right and um, which was obviously I'm sure a lot of filmmakers didn't like that you know and companies or whatever but apparently that was something that had happened um, in the community in the filmmaking community at that time and so he when he brought a print to or they were doing something at um, this duplication house he tells the post-production, the place that was doing the duplications, he tells the manager, hey, can I go back there and just, I used to work in post-production, I want to talk with some of the guys there in the back. And uh, he goes there and he says, hey guys, look, I have a feeling you guys are probably going to make, you know, some a few copies of this movie and um, for yourselves or whatever. And the guys in the back room were like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Well, of course we're not going to do that. And he basically told them, look, if you happen to make copies and they get out there to some key people, whatever, then that happens. Mm-hmm. And he never obviously told him, do that, you know, but he then walks away. And lo and behold, a number of bootleg tapes um, started to kind of probably from fe- film festivals that had sent that they had sent it to, and probably from those, some of these post places, it became like this viral VHS tape mm-hmm. that went around to the filmmaking community, particularly I think the festival community, people who are sure. in that mix, to the point where he Kevin was driving um, to Sundance um, and. While he was getting close to Sundance, he was like listening to like, I don't know, like a Kevin and Bean radio station or whatever, disc jockeys talking. And they go, oh man, have you heard about the, we just saw this movie, a VHS tape of this movie called Blair Witch Project. And he turns up the radio and he's like, whoa, what? And these are like Utah guys or whatever. (laughs) And it was like, how did they get the tape? And he gets to Sundance. Again, this is like in my, the documentary and the interview that uh, that I did. Uh, he tells me the story and he said he gets to Sundance and he meets up with a friend of his who didn't really know why Kevin was going, why he was there at Sundance. And the friend is like, oh, man, um, I just uh, uh, a day ago I was at um, a house and I watched uh, this crazy movie <laughs> called Blair Witch Project on some tape. And and Kevin didn't immediately. He was like, really? And he's like, yeah. And then Kevin goes, whose house was this? And he was like, oh, it was Kurt Russell's house and uh, Golding Golding Hawn. And apparently, it is the tape had gotten deeper into this. Is again, this is before the film actually showed at Sundance. I see. It's pretty. Cool. So it's not connections. It's just like really kind of ingenious marketing. Well, I mean, or, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, 
I think that there's some level of connections because yeah. some of those people, you know, who were at the New York uh, screening, um, they were in the probably industry. would have known uh, some people there. I don't think it. I, what I'm saying is, I don't think it didn't. I didn't think it hurt, right? Mm-hmm. To to do that compared to say when you send out um, a tape into Sundance. Um, I think just having some kind of awareness that's out there that this is a worthy kind of um, thing to um, to program, you know, I think it helps. That said, it's like Christopher Nolan, his um, first film following, mm-hmm. it didn't, it was submitted to Sundance and they didn't accept it, you know, and it's a, I don't know if you've seen the film. I did, I like it. Yeah, I really dig that film, big time. And um I didn't. I mean, you know, Christopher Nolan became Christopher Nolan, but that film did not um, make it into Sundance. It did get into Slam Dance, and Ooh. then um, built up momentum. And, and know, he made Memento. Yeah. yeah, but then Memento, I believe, did play at Sundance. Um, but he already had some kind of like. But he exactly name exactly even if small. Um, and so you know, so there's all this kind of stuff that kind of happens, but. Um, but you know, I I don't know what the program the, the specifics are. like. I I haven't gone behind the curtain over there or whatever, but I definitely think it helps if you can get a certain amount of awareness and people are responding strongly as they did to Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, or in its early days on the internet and stuff because it's it's so it was so fresh as a type of film. Now. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of people who dislike the film because, like, it's it feels like it's just a bunch of um, leaves, basically. <laughs> and people, yeah, there was a big backlash. I remember after, which isn't unusual for such a huge hit. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of dismissive talk about how it really wasn't all that good. And, and yeah, leaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I mean, but the thing is, is like, I could see why some people would be like, because it's, it's not going to be for everybody, you know, like this type of, you have to kind of adopt, you have to, uh, uh, you have to allow yourself to be like, okay, I'm willing to watch this for this kind of reason. You have to kind of dial into it, I think. And some people are just not going to, and also some people got seasick because there was news articles that people were like watching the film in theaters and then um, were um, throwing up, right? Oh, right. And But the thing was, it was like, that was great for marketing because it's like, oh, I just saw Blair Witch and people are throwing up on it. And people are like, holy moly, I got to watch that movie, you know? But but a lot of, I think a lot of the reason people are throwing up is because, of you know, it's just seasick, you know? Yeah. It's a good, it's a good trick, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I don't know, Eileen. Do you have any? Oh, I don't. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm fading. I'm fading. You're right. fading. Yeah. Okay. I I think it's close to a wrap, but I have to share the story of this episode. Why we're so low energy and. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> we have like we have to share the story. It's almost like a Blair Witch curse. <laughs> <laughs> to some kind of like affected affected the podcast recording so we were what is it the interview is almost two hours but we spent almost three hours before recording trying to fix the kind of the mic issues <laughs> yeah. so yeah and it was it was very kind of mysterious how how the hell it all well, went yeah. wrong mic issues that that affected every as possible aspect. I don't think we still know. 
Yeah, we haven't fully solved it, so <laughs> so yeah, the, rec- the recording, I mean, hopefully it's good quality, but a bit off, but it was really felt like some kind of curse. And also on top of it all, while well, we took three hours to solve this issue, to be able to, to do this recording, uh, Ben Rock just dialed Zuby out of nowhere. That was kind of amazing what because it was like, because I, I had to refresh my memory about certain things, so I actually looked at his article and stuff. Um and so while we were trying to deal with this um, audio issues, my phone goes off and it says Ben Rock. And I was like, whoa, why is he calling? So I um, answered the call and he's like, hey, I'll just call and say hi. And I was like, and it's not like I talk to Ben Rock every day or anything. So it was kind of like <laughs> unexpected. And I was like, oh, my God. So. Well, <laughs> I hope he like he blessed this episode. Yes, yeah. I hope it was it was insightful. All right, I mean it was great talking to you, Zuby. Yeah, Thanks so thank much. you so much really for having insider, me. great insider stuff. I'd never heard anything remotely like, um, and you know even the stories that I had heard were great, but these all really top the stories of Blair Witch. Yeah, so I I think yeah, thanks for also bearing without technical difficulty, difficulties. Yeah. But I think can I share with the listeners your trailer for your film? Yeah, I mean I um, I think I have it on um, a Is Facebook it? page, I think. But I also I believe I have it on the Vimeo. Um, so maybe you know. Um, I might link it or something. Yeah, so. just, just, just a link. Yeah. All right. So yeah. you're open to that. Yeah. That's that's great. And I hope. Who knows. What if miraculously someone, I don't know, Jordan Peele or someone, I don't know, someone steps I in. I just want to like say it, put it out there. Yeah. What if it happens and, and the, the documentary of yours can come to some fruition? I, I got to say, yeah, screens. anybody, if it's like a Jordan Peele or if it's like, you know, Stephen <laughs> King or whomever or just, you know, who, whoever can, you know, you know, help give it that nudge out there to basically say, hey, man, this makes sense to me uh, to see this documentary. That would be amazing. <laughs> well, who knows? Let's try. <laughs> yeah, Jordan Peele, give We're us a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well, who knows? We'll promote this on Twitter. That's yeah, funny. What if the, the Twitter is a very democratic tool, so who knows? What there if someone go. might help you? So I think that was that was it. And uh, we'll get back to you in two weeks. With well, the, the curse is lifted. The Blair Witch curse is lifted by then. Yeah, hopefully. I hopefully. <laughs> hopefully it all get recorded and won't disappear. Thank you so much for having me here for sure. Thank um, you. It was a really great, great okay. fun time I had. Thanks. Bye. Delightful. Bye. Bye-bye.